everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Joining me, as always, is my co-podcaster, Ian Rowe, who is also a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And today, I'm actually going to interview Ian. I'm very excited about his new book. It's called Agency, the four-point plan for children to overcome the victimhood narrative and discover their pathway to power. Thank you so much, Ian, for joining me today and every time we podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's so great to see you, Naomi, and I'm very excited for this conversation. I'm wearing a slightly different hat today. Terrific. All right. So, Ian, I mean, you know, so much of this book comes out of your own personal story. And I know that, you know, every interview about a book starts with the question of why did you write this book? But but tell me, like, the point in your professional life. I mean, you've worked for AEI, you've worked for the Gates Foundation, you've run charter schools, you're on a local school board. Like, tell me the point in your life at which you thought, I need to write this book and I need to get this message out there about the way we're talking to kids about their lives and their futures. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you for doing this. That, yeah, that's such an interesting question because I feel like in some ways my entire life has been building to writing this book because I, you know, I have, I have had been very fortunate in my career, you know, at the White House, MTV and Bono and like, you know, all like the muckety-muck stuff and celebrities and and yet worked at the Gates Foundation and then Teach for America in its early days and that now actually running schools. And the truth is, I am obsessed with this question of what does it really take for young people to succeed, especially young people in circumstances beyond their control that they have been dealt challenges that maybe other kids just haven't. And you know, so as much as I'm a, a a senior fellow at AEI, I you know I also run schools, and so I'm 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 always thinking about how do the ideas that you know policymakers or academicians like concoct in the safety of a you know a nice headquarters, like how do those ideas actually play out on 149th Street and Third Avenue, you know, in the heart of the South Bronx? And I've had a few different experiences, I guess, in my life that would answer this question of what what led me to say it's time to write a book and maybe yeah i mean i'll i'll i share a couple of them that i do share in the book probably the the most recent was in uh 2016 it was uh july 11th at about four o'clock wow you you have the moment pinned down ian (laughs) Well, it's so interesting because I had been running public prep, which is a network of public charter schools, all girls, all boys schools for six years. We've been having great success in, you know, running schools that we thought were providing a great option for kids in in the South Bronx and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. We wanted to grow. You know, we had 2000 kids in our schools. We had nearly 5000 kids on our wait list in, in just in the Bronx. And this was in a district where only 2% of kids uh, graduate from high school ready for college. So we wanted to grow and, and we wanted to grow in particular in the South Bronx. So we moved our headquarters from Tribeca, you know, it's like very she-she and cool and all that. <laughs> <laughs> Leaving Bono behind, yes. Yes, yeah, all, all of that, all of that. <laughs> and we moved our headquarters to, you know, 148th and 3rd in the South Bronx. You know, there was a needle exchange on the corner. We had, we had, 
you know, addicts that were uh, seeking out treatment that were walking by our front door and, and um, that, you know, understandably made some of our staff members nervous. But this is this is where our kids were. This is where these were is where our community was. We were going to build schools, so we should have our headquarters there. So we decided to take a walking tour of the neighborhood um, just to where's the local bodega? Where's the local bank? And as we were walking as a team, I saw in the distance a group of adults gathered around a truck, this baby blue 27 foot Winnebago truck. And um, as we got closer, uh, the, <laughs> there was lettering on the side in graffiti lettering that said, who's your daddy? And yet all these people were excited. It's like literally like the uh, like the ice cream truck with kids. And, um, you know, <laughs> But it turned out that the Who's Your Daddy truck was a mobile DNA testing center. I was taken aback by that. And, you know, and basically low income folks were spending somewhere between $350 to $500 to answer questions such as, you know, could you be my sister? Are you my father? You know, I discovered that there had been a second truck because demand was so high. VH1, you know, talk about my MTV days. VH1 actually had a reality show. Yeah. on on that bus called swab stories and it, you know, almost like entertainment and it was really deep to me and it's not that i didn't know that family structure was an issue for a lot of our kids but seeing that truck and the normalcy really hit me in a way that i felt like my schools necessary but not sufficient i just felt i wanted to let young people know that even if they're in an environment, because I discovered these kind of numbers exist in Chicago and Appalachia and Rochester and Buffalo and many places all across the country, that their present condition could be different and that they had power. They had, they had choices in their life. And I discovered content around this thing called the success sequence, which I know you and I have talked about lots. Yes. And that's just data which says if you finish, a, finish your high school degree, full-time work, marriage than children, 97% of the time you avoid poverty. So yeah. I, I thought, well, let's start teaching kids about these things and faced massive opposition because it's not enough just to have data. You've got to figure out how to translate this information in such a way that actually resonates with the community that you are seeking to uh, help. And that in many ways, help, that in many ways that helped me start thinking about how do you take these ideas or this data or research and make it, I don't know, absorbable in a way that actually helps people? So it, it's interesting because a lot of the book, you know, talks about the victimhood narrative and the problems with the victimhood narrative and the way we we talk to people about how they are kind of the object. They're they're not the subject of their actions. They're just being acted upon. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about that truck. In many ways, these people are victims. I mean, that is that they're coming, they're they're in this situation, they're asking, you know, who's my father? Who's my sister? They're, they don't, they don't have the 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 background and the um the foundation of knowing who they are and where they come from. And they don't have that stability that a lot of people in this country do and that privileged people in this country do. And so you're sort of saying to them, we take you, we understand that point that you're starting at, 
but that doesn't have to dictate the rest of your life. And so you lay out in the book some very clear ideas for, you know, how people can take ownership, have agency. Um, but I was wondering if you could kind of just talk for, for a minute about what it means to go from that sense of, of victimhood, from that sense of, of, of not having a good family foundation, what it takes to overcome that and become the actor, the protagonist in your own yeah. life. Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I think fundamentally the idea is that even if you are in a situation where you could describe yourself as being a victim of circumstance, right? It doesn't mean that you have to take on a victim mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm really trying to create a whole new framework, because I, I feel that young people today are trapped in these two uh, dominant meta narratives. And the first meta narrative I call blame the system. And the second meta narrative is blame the victim. And both of these are kind of explanations are for why you're not successful, why you haven't achieved the American dream. In the blame the system narrative, America is the problem, right? It's an inherently racist country. It's, it's an oppressive country, like based on your race, your class, your gender, the system is rigged against you. There's a white supremacist lurking on every corner. Like capitalism itself is evil. And the systems are so rigged, so designed for your destruction that the only way that you can be successful is massive government intervention. Right, overturning the system. O overturning the system, right? So, And so if you look at things like the 1619 Project or critical race theory, all of those are around this idea that literally in the very DNA of the country are the forces designed for your destruction, right? But on the other hand, the blame the victim ideology is exactly the opposite. It's sort of America's not the problem. You're the problem. Right. <laughs> you haven't pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps. You are, there's some pathology that you have. Even if you haven't had the benefit of, you know, just completely ignoring the fact that you may not have had the institutions to help shape your character or provide other resources, both of these narratives are what I call half-truths that add up to a singular lie. Right. There are some systemic barriers, like, for example, in the heart of the South Bronx, where only two percent of kids are graduating from high school ready for college. There's a cap on charter school. So if you had a great idea to open a school, you couldn't do it right now. So a seven year old can't solve that problem. Right. So there are some systemic barriers. And on the other side, personal responsibility is always a component of you being successful. But in the midst of these two dominant narratives, I feel that young people have their sense of agency robbed from them. Okay. So the question is, how do you, how do you develop a tomorrow mindset? How do you develop uh, an overcomer's mindset? And that's where I am introducing this, this concept of agency, where I define agency as the force of your free will guided by moral discernment, mm -hmm. the force of your free will guided by moral discernment, where if you're a human being on this planet, you have free will. But the question is, where does, you know, where does, the, where does your ability to become a morally discerning person come from, right? Like agency is like a vector, like velocity 
is not just speed, it's speed and direction. So what are the institutions that we need to revitalize so that every young person can know they have free will and then can collect and develop the ability to become a morally discerning person in terms of the choices? Right. So we, we've talked about the, the family one, which is obviously so important to this. And we've seen the deterioration of that and the effects that has had on you know, everything from educational outcomes to violence in the home to substance abuse. Talk about the next, the next part of the free acronym, religion. So yeah. we have also seen in this country a real decline in, in church going and even religious belief on some measures. Like, talk about what role religion has played in the past and how you think we can sort of bring it back into people's lives in a way that will help them find that moral discernment that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So very important. So, I mean, uh, the, the reason I've created this free framework, family, religion, education and entrepreneurship, is that I've con- come to the conclusion that either, even though each one of these institutions is critical, each one is necessary, but not sufficient unto itself. Like coming from a great family is, is, is foundational. And, and we'll talk about, it's not necessarily about the family that you're from, it's about the family that you form, right? So each of the elements of free are all future facing, where R, as you say, R is for religion, E for education, and E for entrepreneurship. The R, the reason I actually decided to incorporate that in my framework was that when I originally started this book, I was only going to be writing about success sequence. I was only going to be writing about education, work, marriage, children, as almost like a technical set of decisions. Right, right. That's like an economic framework, but there was no moral dimension. Yeah. And I realized I'm literally ignoring one of the hugest potential forces of positive movement in one's own life, the very idea of a personal faith commitment. We, we know study upon study that links to human flourishing, the relationship for a personal faith commitment. And what's actually interesting in our country today is that as formal religiosity has gone down, John McWhorter calls it woke racism. It's like a new religion. They're, they're like these artificial religions who are kind of filling the void. Right. right. Where you can be excommunicated. And I think young people are searching for answers. Yeah. And that's why things like anti-racism and some of these other like new religions that were created like last week, you know, are yeah. suddenly filling the void. So I am I'm trying to through the book and through the some of the subsequent efforts, elevate people around the country that are that are re-engaging young people in more traditional religious activity. And there's incredible data that shows personal faith commitments, reduction in depression, reduction in loneliness, improved academic outcomes, more civic engagement, healthier relationships. You become part of networks of people that care for you. The religious commitment here kind of spans these two things. They're both, it's both about the individual commitment and about the community support and the, and the system that's there too. And so, you know, you, you see like sociologists always have trouble kind of um, taking apart the effects of what what's be, what's because of the community and that you're a part of and the support that you're getting from that and what's because of your individual yeah. you know relationship to the faith or to God but it's clear that those two are very much entangled and I think that they bridge this divide that you're talking about between the kind of bootstrapping 
and the idea that, you know, the the society is going to do everything for me. Yeah. And yeah, right. I mean, you cannot do this alone. You can't do this alone. I mean, every successful person has had some institution, some person embrace them. And that's often coming from a faith based organization. I, I actually lament that in our current polarization, a lot of faith leaders are actually absent and can talk with moral authority on issues of race, gender. And so from an, yeah, so I so I do try to explore both dimensions, the, the role of a personal faith commitment in your own life, what it can mean for you, the data is overwhelming, while also trying to encourage more religious faith-based organizations to become part more of the civic debate and even get more involved in even running schools and creating uh, alternatives, even within the public education system. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on to the education component. It's something that we talk about on this podcast all the time, uh, all the terrible education policies that are leading to so many of the bad, the, the you know, sometimes the well-intentioned ones um, that are leading to so many of the bad outcomes uh, in, in terms of kids' development. I just wanted to sort of talk for, for a minute about the, the kind of intentions especially the discussion of money, like, you know, how much money uh, we are putting into public education in particular, and why, you know, people, people are so frustrated that they don't see the results that they want in American education. What are, what are you, what do you think are the key components of improving education in this country? And what do you mean by education? Do you mean everyone should get a college degree? Do you mean, you know, everyone, you know, everyone needs to read certain books? What what is it that's going to do the work of empowering young people, you know, to take ownership and to have agency in the long run? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, having run public charter schools in the heart of the South Bronx, and now I'm launching a new high school, which actually is an extension of the schools that only went through middle school. Now they're going to go all the way through high school and international baccalaureate school. You know, one of the challenges of running great schools in tough communities is you recognize that it's not just about school. You know, there are amazing things that we can do within the walls of a classroom with great principals, great teachers, high expectations. But kids spend still spend the vast majority of their time outside of school over the summer, at night. And so the E for education is is trying to focus on what we can do within that within that time frame, public and private, this idea that more parents need school choice. Again, in New York City, there's a wait list of 60,000 kids on the wait list for charter schools, and there's a ban on charter schools, right? So there, there are things that people in middle and upper class communities, I think, take for granted, you know, their ability to move to a wonderful suburb to go to great schools, the ability to send their kid to private school, you know, there, you just kind of, you just kind of, you don't even think of it as school choice. And yet that's the very desperate, you know, option that many, many families need. And I go into detail uh, in the book about why this is so important. There are other things, like, for example, there is great research that says a kid that reads a million words per year almost always correlates to the highest levels of academic achievement. And if you look, if you parse out a million words per year, if you think about pacing, fluency, that translates into about 20 to 25 minutes of independent reading every single day. And if you do that, that means about a thousand new words per year in terms of new vocabulary words. If we could get everyone to focus on that, 
that would dramatically improve academic outcomes, not only in reading, but also math and science and history. But most of our discussion focuses on things like equity or racial achievement gaps or, or um, critical race theory, not recognizing that only 44% of all white kids in our country are reading at grade level, right? Yeah. And so, so I try to parse out that we have lots of distractions. The level of money being spent, like in New York City, you know, I mean, we we spend north of twenty thousand yep. uh, dollars per kid, yep. and you're not seeing the outcomes. And there are a lot of factors. Uh, yep. So for me, education, school choice, uh, literacy, more character based or religious based organizations actually getting into the realm of public education, not necessarily running religious schools, but character based schools that really have focus on high expectations, literacy. I think that's um, fundamental. Right. for giving kids a, a shot at the American dream. So the, the last E that you talked about is, is entrepreneurship. And, and this is sort of related in a sense to the question I'm asking. I was asking about education, which is, you know, what are the things that, first, you can tell us what you mean by entrepreneurship, but like in a more, in a more narrow sense that people traditionally understand entrepreneurship, what are the tools that people need um, to be able to kind of yep. build up their, um, their economic agency? their ability to start to start their own business or to get started in a particular field. And how do we sort of instill that in, in young people? I mean, on the one hand, I think a lot of young people, you know, sort of naturally have it. Um, you know, you see that when you talk to, you know, younger people about, you know, they're in some ways they're more willing to take risks and that's a good thing in certain contexts, but you, you kind of, you want to encourage that, but you also have to give them certain tools. What are the what are the tools young people need for entrepreneurship in a narrow sense and in a broad sense? Yeah. And there's a reason this last E comes after F, R and E. <laughs> because <laughs> Number the idea, two, yes. Yes. Well, no, it's interesting because if you are if you start to build a strong family, if you have a strong faith commitment, if you've been able to secure a good education. What that actually does, it provides a foundation where you become more amenable to taking informed risk, <laughs> right? This idea of you being becoming an owner, a producer, as opposed to just a consumer. So one of the ways we think about this, even in the high school that I'm about to launch through the Charles Schwab Fractional Ownership Program, every ninth grader is going to have a portfolio of 10 S&P 500 stocks. Oh. Apple, Walmart, Google. So for $5, you can own a fractional share of each one of these stocks. So every kid's going to have a 50 bucks, $50 portfolio. And it seems like a simple thing, but yeah. imagine we're going to have conversations with our students that you're now this owner. And so every quarter we'll have these reports like, wow, you're, you've, you've, um, you've gotten dividends and my earnings are up and yeah. mine are down. Yeah. why is that? And so even if a kid has a, an, an iPhone, they won't just be a user. They'll, they'll start to understand, wow, there's an owner of this company. In fact, I'm an owner. And what does that mean? <laughs> no, no, but, but these are- They'll go in and demand an upgrade. That's what'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. And so the whole idea of entrepreneurship is how do you develop an ownership mindset? And it's not only in economics, it's problem solving. It's because you can be an entrepreneur, Booker T. Washington, you know, a great, you know, founded Tuskegee Institute. You know, when he saw a problem 100 plus years ago during Jim Crow segregation and the, 
inferior, what he thought, inferior conditions of schools focused on black kids, he said, you know what, I'm going to solve this problem. He partnered with Julius Rosenwald, who at the time ran the Sears Roebuck Company, and together they formed five, nearly 5,000 schools throughout the South exclusively for black kids. And there was a component that required every local community to help raise money, to help build the school, and unbelievable levels of achievement, academic achievement. John Lewis was a, Maya Angelou was a a Rosenwald School graduate. And it's just a great example of problem solving, taking ownership of a challenge and not playing the victim, but playing the person coming up with solutions. And so that's what the E in entrepreneurship. Yeah, you're right. That when it comes to entrepreneurship, most people think of starting a company, but I'm actually trying to expand the definition. It includes work, certainly. It includes the idea of starting your own company in economics, but it's also the last component of taking ownership. You're an entrepreneur. I think that that's an area that many young people across race, by the way, don't really see as an aspect of how they're going to have an impact in their own lives. So you you just use the phrase across race, and I think that really leads me to my next question, which is how much of this book and this formula is about race? I mean, we talk about the 1619 Project, we talk about the particular victimhood narrative that is offered to Black children today, but how do you envision someone reading this book and thinking about non-Black children in this country? Yeah. Do you think that they're getting the same messaging, and do you think that the same tools need to be used? in order to help white children? I mean, you mentioned Appalachia earlier. I mean, there's obviously plenty of white poverty and white underachievement in schools. And uh, so so can you just describe like, on the one hand, I think you're very, you're focused on black children for good reason. and, And because there's this particular narrative out there, but how does this apply to all children in America? Yeah, well, the, that, that blame the system and blame the victim narrative, those meta narratives, I think they are hurting all children. So let's say blame the system, you know, like you're an oppressor because of your skin color or you're oppressed because of your skin color, right? Both of those lock you into a certain role. Like you're no longer, you're no longer your own actor. You're just playing a role in someone else's explanation of why things are the way they are. And so, you know, there's these these um, these privilege walks that have been starting around the country in the name of equity, where kids are lined up on one horizontal line. And if you're told by the teacher, you know, if you're white, take three steps forward. If you're black, take five steps backward. And by the end of the class, all the white kids are up front and all the black. And so but both are just locked into a certain role, I guess, because I'm white, I'm superior to you. You know, it's just, and literally that, that is part of the lesson plan to reinforce white kids belief that, you know, that they are somehow inherently privileged. Meanwhile, the issues that are facing across the country, levels of loneliness, isolation, the non-marital birth rate, like for women 24 and under in 2019, the non-marital birth rate was 71% across all uh, races. It was 91% in the black community, which are staggering, but it was 61% in the white community. And because there's so many more white women, the numbers of young white children being born into unstable households, it's not surprising then when you see explosions in things like deaths of despair, loneliness. So the, the framework for free, in my view, it's universal, and timeless. Yeah. We have collective wisdom about the factors and institutions 
that drive human flourishing. Family, again, it's not about the family that you're from, it's about the family that you form. Family, religion, education, and entrepreneurship. We know that those pillars, if embraced by young people of all races, can dramatically improve your chances of leading a self-determined life. And that's what I've written agency to hopefully do. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you this. Who who when you were writing this book, what reader did you have in mind? Is it is it a parent? Is it a school leader? Who is it who should be reading this book and applying these lessons somehow to the children in their lives, I guess? Yeah. So I I, I think I've written this for all the gatekeepers. <laughs> right? All the gatekeepers. So it is. It's parents. It's teachers, it's school principals, it's policymakers, it's people who have the ability to shape the environment. And by the way, it's pastors and ministers. It's it's all the people who have the ability to shape the environments that either help shape the moral character for young people or, or they don't. And I also try to include practical tools. So literally in the book, because people ask me all the time, how do you teach things like the success sequence in school without moralizing, because, you know, you teach that you're going to embarrass the very kids that you're talking about because their families may not have made those decisions in their own lives. Well, literally in the book, there's a sample curriculum unit on how to teach the success sequence. Mm -hmm. And it's taught in like a probability fashion that if you make this series of decisions, this is your likelihood of economic success. If you make this series of decisions, here are different outcomes always trying to empower the young person to make a choice. So in this case, the gatekeeper or principals, school leaders, policymakers, like here's how we could actually codify this to actually make this happen in the real world. I write it for pastors, ministers. I would love it if, you know, 10 year olds would pick up the book agency. <laughs> it's not really, it's not really. I'm, I'm waiting for the YA edition. Yeah, well, you know, maybe there is. They're actually a few years ago. I, oh, oh, no, no, no. I have a better idea. How about something like babies with agency? Oh, I like that. Offer that instead of the the, the, uh, the anti-racist anti baby. baby. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to well, you know, find you an uh, illustrator. It'll be great. <laughs> well, you know, a few years ago when I was touring the country, looking at great high schools to help design the high school that we're launching this uh, August, I went to New Orleans and I sat with a group of ninth graders. And this was almost all low-income kids, almost all kids of color. And I said to them, you know, I'm, I'm designing a new high school and I really want to develop this idea around pathways to power, like the, the steps you can take in your own life. And I said, you know, that there's information that if you make certain decisions in your life, data shows that 97% of the time, people who do these things avoid poverty. And I said, would you like to know that? And they said, <laughs> of course, we'd like to know that. Well, of course, we like. And I said, well, I don't know. I can't tell you because there's some people that say, if I share this with you, you might be insulted or and they just looked at me like, what are you talking about? You you cannot keep that. You can't tease us with this information and then yeah. not tell us. And it was just very interesting. Like kids want to know. And so we then proceeded to have a conversation about the success sequence and steps involved. And it's not that their lives were changed forever, but it there was something I think that they felt respected. Mm -hmm. They felt respected as future decision makers. And so maybe there is a version of this that goes directly to young people because 
we have to acknowledge and, that. And you know, not just, and I should interrupt you because they're not just future decision makers. They're making decisions right now. I mean, ninth graders are making decisions right now that are going to affect the rest of their lives. So we're not handing them this information when they're 25 is not a yeah. particularly helpful way to, to go about this. Correct. And and 100%. And I feel that sometimes people want to cocoon young people from some of these issues in such a way that you're actually depriving them of the very information that could help their lives. And for a lot of these folks who are the sort of gatekeepers who want to keep this information away from kids, in their own personal lives, a lot of these folks are finishing their education, you know, getting full-time work, getting married before children, right? So there's almost like a little not preaching what you practice in your own life. And I just feel we have to be honest with kids about the choices that they are going to be facing shortly within their own lives. Well, the way we used to pass on this information was just by practicing it. People were surrounded by adults of all races who married before they had kids and who finished their education and got a job. I mean, and and the problem now is that we have to be much more explicit about it because they're in a culture that has not embraced those practices. And uh, and so you could say, oh, it's it's too preachy. But, you know, where else are they going to get this message? And what's interesting is that there's a bifurcation because what you just described is still happening within certain communities, right? There are certain communities in our country where everyone's married, lots of home ownership, very low non-marital birth rates, but the cultural divide is now around marriage in many ways because there are a whole other segment of community where you'll have non-marital birth rates of 80, 85%. So you're not seeing, you see religiosity going down. So for that segment of the community of our country, which is across race, my hope is that agency can be a new framework that is embraced in such a way that helps young people see a very different set of possibilities for their own lives. Great conversation, Ian. Thank you so much. Thank you for writing Agency. I encourage everybody to go out and get it. It is available this month, May. Um, And uh, yeah, we're going to have many more conversations about these topics to come on future episodes of Are You Kidding Me? But thank you so much, Ian, for writing this book. And I hope people really take it to heart and understand what they can do to reshape the environments that all the kids that we talk about in Are You Kidding Me? are living in these days. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and onward. You know, live and be free. A life of agency is within your grasp. That's what we need to let young people know. And this has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get these episodes on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thanks so much, and please tune in again. Thank you. Thank you.